0: Welcome back to another week of the Tyson Pre-Show. I'm so glad you joined us this week. I've got an incredible topic lined up for today, and then we're going to stretch this out for a few weeks, and it is the ability to transition and make decisions. We're going to talk about that today, but before we get into that, I want to say thank you to everybody who's listening, A big thank you to everybody who's sharing this show with their friends. Apparently, the word is getting out. We have listeners from around the world, so if you are outside the United States, thank you so much for listening to those that listen in South Africa and the Netherlands, uh, Haiti, the UK, and I could go on. Thank you for listening. It means a lot that you listen. If you would take the time and rate this show... On whatever avenue or platform you're listening to this podcast on, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. Also, if you want to email me directly, you can do that, Tyson at Tysonpriest.com. I'd love to hear from you directly um, and see how I can more powerfully serve you in your world to help you make better decisions and to own the mountain. In front of you well before we get started in today's topic I want to do what I do every week and that's remind you that your diet is not only what you eat it is what you watch it is what you listen to what you read and the people you associate with you know I often tell people I can tell where your future is going to be by your five closest friends. And if your five closest friends aren't growing and moving forward in their life and being intentional in their growth, you probably aren't either. And so those are people that are not owning it. Those are people, life is happening to them. And those are people who are not in the trenches fighting. And I want to say Thank you for letting me jump in your trench, fight the fight with you, and be your foxhole buddy. Now, if you're wondering what a foxhole buddy is, go back a couple episodes ago where I talk about the importance of having a foxhole buddy, and I talk about the three C's, C as in cat, the three C's of relationship. So thank you for letting me jump in your foxhole with you today. Thank you for letting me be your foxhole buddy, that we're going to own this thing together, Listen, King Solomon said in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So that's the whole point of this show, is to help you make better better decisions, better transitions in life, guard that heart so that you can own the mountain just like a bear owns their mountain. Before we get into today's topic, the quote for this week is from Esther Jungreis. She is, she was the wife of a Jewish rabbi, Theodore Jungreis. So I just want to quote to you what she says here because it's so key to our topic, not just today but for the coming weeks. She says, "I have no understanding of the energy that God planted within our souls. Therefore." God has to test us to bring forth those treasures that are buried deep within ourselves and make us unique. Now, think about what she just said there. She said that we don't fully comprehend our own ability and what what we are capable of and what's inside of us. And so we face these trials, these tests, etc., so that God can begin to bring out of us what's really in us. And so if you're going through a difficult situation, or if you're trying to, I'm going to use a cliche word that's in vogue right now, if you're trying to pivot, we're going to change that word for the coming weeks, and we're just going to say transition. If you're trying to transition, all right, then God provides these opportunities to dig within us and to realize that there is so much, he has placed so much more in us than what we ever thought was possible. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that also there's a power living in you that's greater than yourself, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit helping you make those transitions and power through. When your willpower stops, the Holy Spirit's power picks up and you work in conjunction with one another. But today, as we talk about transitions, I, I got to start off with telling you a very important story that will help us kind of springboard into this topic. Probably 60 years ago, older than most of you listening, for sure, um, over 60 years ago, there was this na- man by the name of Leia Coca. Now, Lee Iacocca worked for General Motors and Lee Iacocca and another person at General Motors that you've probably heard his name, John DeLorean, (laughs) yes, that DeLorean uh, from that movie that deals with time, travel, came out in the 80s, John DeLorean invented that car Um, This is that same John DeLorean. John DeLorean's working at GM at the time. And he and Lee Iacocca are just kind of looking at what's happening to the children, the baby boom generation that are coming up. And they're starting to get their driver's license. And there's this, as America has had for a very long time, a love affair with the automobile. They begin to realize that this baby boom generation, there's a big market here to reach teenagers with the automobile. The automobile can go from being a functional uh, family vehicle, the family can ride in and go on vacations together. It can move from being a truck and a work, a quote unquote, workhorse for those at work but it could really be a a toy for teenagers. They they saw this coming, and they saw this coming from drag racing, stock car, uh, the Deep South stock car races. They saw this kind of trend happening. Well, John and Lee, both working for GM, wanted to make their own version to reach this market. And what they did, not they actually, John DeLorean, um, in obsession, seeing the obsession with the teenagers, John DeLorean made uh, the Pontiac, the Pontiac Tempest GTO, right? And that, GTO, and if you're wondering what GTO stands for, it's Gran Turismo Homologato, which is Italian for Grand Touring Homolog... I can't pronounce that. So, anyway, just know that GTO, the GTO by Pontiac, was brought into being as the GTO muscle car that we know by John DeLorean. Now, Lee Iacocca had a dream and a vision for a muscle car, as did John DeLorean. But they're both working together. John DeLorean gets the upper hand in General Motors, and they push it. They begin to push out the GTO. They begin to push that out. Lee Iacocca is disheartened. He's dismayed, um, upset. All of the negative emotions that probably you can imagine would go with that, and so. Lee Iacocca, <clears throat> at the age of 22 in 1946, uh, was hired by Ford, <clears throat> and said, "Well, that's fine, GM. I'm going to go over to your competitor." And he still had in his the back of his mind this what we know today as muscle car. Um, and Lee Iacocca was a was a great engineer. He did. Uh, produced a lot of cars, and the timing of Lee Iacocca's movement from General Motors to Ford could not have been any better. Why, you ask? Because Ford was fledging and floundering with this other vehicle. What is this other vehicle? Well, you might have heard of, and and researched this, but the Ford Edsel. E-D-S-E-L. The Ford Edsel. Now, I've got a picture of it pulled up on uh, my computer as I'm recording this podcast. I just want to tell you, this is one ugly, and I mean ugly vehicle. All right? This vehicle... Is uh, just just putrid. I mean, it 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 looks like if there were car gods, they vomited the Etzel. <laughs> and the Etzel was a failure for multiple reasons. Um, the price points for the Etzel to purchase the price points were confusing. Uh, they had done insufficient market research. Um, the way the dealerships were organized at the time didn't help either. Um, they had severe quality and re- reliability with the Edsel. Um, and as I said to, it was just ugly. I mean, the exterior design was just ugly. Uh, and then of course, corporately Ford was having some internal issues. I think, uh, Henry Ford II was wanting to buy Ferrari, uh, at this time, instead of <clears throat> trying to develop their own, what we know today as muscle car, Henry, this, uh, Henry Ford II was looking, actually looking at buying Ferrari during this time, and adding Ferrari to the Ford lineup. That would have really changed things for Ferrari and for Ford. Um, I doubt they would be known as what they are today. So, needless to say, they didn't buy. They did not buy Ferrari, obviously. And so Lee Iacocca shows up at Ford as Ford is floundering with Edsel. Uh, having all kinds of problems. And when Lee Iacocca shows up, he's got this burning sensation to create this car with a lot of power. right? But the opportunity is not right. The, the, the timing doesn't seem to be right. Ford's wanting to buy Ferrari. They're floundering with this new... Thing called Edsel, they're having uh their dealership issues all sorts of problems and basically to make a long story short lee iacocca bends the ear of the of the people at ford and they they originally they don't want it right they, they don't want this this idea of this of this muscle car um but lee iacocca is not to be Stopped, right? He he is he is not to be stopped, and so he begins to kind of move through the ranks of Ford, and he begins to climb the ladder, begins to to gain influence, and as he's doing this, people are starting to buy on to this idea of Ford building their own muscle car that we would later know as the Mustang and so Lee Iacocca in his attempt to get the Mustang out and and in his mind he wasn't calling it the Mustang he just had this idea for this car he championed a number of different and newer car designs throughout the 60s Um, and so when he debuted the what we call the Mustang now right Uh, he had an unprecedented, unprecedented budget uh, of less than $50 million to design, build, etc. this quote-unquote muscle car that Ford was going to develop. But he rolled up his sleeves, he pushed through it, um, and he pushed this design through. Now he wanted this Mustang to have four bucket seats. He wanted it to have power. Um, And basically, that's what he got. And the first Mustang was officially introduced at the New York World's Fair on April 17th, 1964. Now, in the first year, Ford thought, we might sell 100,000 of these vehicles in a year. We might. We might sell 100,000 of these vehicles in a year. But when they began selling the Mustang, the very first day, The very first day of Mustang sales, they sold 22,000 Mustangs. They sold almost a quarter of what they thought they would sell in a year. They sold a quarter of that in one day. In one day. So what happened? Well, Lee Iacocca comes into Ford. They're fledgling. Things aren't working. And he's like, man, I've got this idea in the back of my head. GM and Pontiac have already kind of beat us to the punch. But I know we can do it. I know we can get this key target audience. I know we can grasp that audience and and, and wow them and really produce something powerful. Now, it was later in the – and by later, I mean like a year or two later, I believe. You'll have to Google this and check. But I believe it's a year or two later that they get the idea of putting in the V8 into the Mustang to make it the most powerful um, muscle car Um, and that was just in the first couple of years because they realized that if we're really going to attract the right audience, we can't just sell a fancy looking car that's really no better than a family car or a family sedan, even though it only has two doors. We need to put some power in this thing and get it down the road. And So Lee Iacocca basically comes in, rises to power puts forth his idea and holding on to that dream. Holding on to that dream that, yes, this will work. Yes, we can make this happen. And that's so important to your dream, to my dream, is not letting go of that thing. And knowing that God's timing is right, even though we don't see it. And usually, God's timing is much later. Therefore, it grows our patience and increases our hunger and our desire but his timing is usually much later than what we anticipate. But that's a good thing for us. That's a good thing for you. That's a good thing for, for me. And so this is kind of what's happening uh, as the Mustang is coming up and going to be released at, at the New York fair. And all of these things are, are kind of happening and things weren't working for Ford. And so, what what happened, right? What were the what were the key things that caused Ford to transition? What caused Lee Iacocca, even working within Ford, to transition to this idea of a muscle car, not purchase Ferrari, let the Edsel die, right? There were key things that happened there to say, you know what, we need to transition. We need to change. We need to move. We need to stop doing what we're doing. We need to stop trying to go down this road of creating this family, this family sedan that really is ugly. It's not getting us where we want to be. And I'm guessing most of you listening to this, there's probably things in your life that it's not where you want it to be. Right? It hasn't quite worked out. But in the back of your mind, you're like Lee Iacocca and you're like, man, I can. I know I can make this thing work. I've been beat up, I've been put down, it didn't work for me, it didn't work for Lee Iacocca at GM, but I know I can go someplace else and make this work. So what happens when we decide to make a transition, whether it's Lee Iacocca going from GM to Ford, whether it's you going from uh, one job, stepping into a dream career or a dream position, or maybe launching out into that entrepreneurial business, or um, taking on that new hobby, right? What are some things that tend to move us when we decide it's time to make a transition? There are three things that I think are key in pushing us towards that transition. Now, I'm going to list these. The first one, number one, is there is a holy discontent. Now, when I say holy discontent, I want to keep that in light of my own experience where I was working at a Fortune 50 insurance company and I just sensed I needed to do more to help people than sit in my cubicle and manage projects in corporate America. I needed to do more and so I stepped out, I felt like, man, I've I've got this, if you want to call it a calling. Um, if you want to call it a dream, whatever you want to call it, you can call it. But I call it a, I had in sitting in that cubicle, I had a holy discontent. Now, I call it holy because for me, it was a spiritual, religious, Christian um, dream to help people further. And so, I, I use the word holy. If your dream or whatever is not in relation to Christianity or spirituality religion, I, I, you can t- you can remove the word holy and simply say there is a level of discontent. okay? There arises a certain level of discontent with where you're at. And all of us have a different breaking point where the discontentment gets to be so great that we say, Okay, I can't sit here any longer, I have to move and transition, right? Um, It might be the person who is, say, working in a donut shop, making donuts, and showing up at the shop at 3 a.m. and making donuts, and they realize that, you know, I could probably, there's some things about these donuts that aren't right, and I have a lot of friends, and I probably could open up my own donut shop and make better donuts, Right, um, there's just a discontent um, maybe you pick up a new hobby out of discontent right? maybe you're maybe you've just really been into uh, gaming let's just say you've been into gaming right? but you're not really producing anything tangible because one good lightning strike to a server someplace or one good earthquake or one good power surge could destroy everything you've ever done in the gaming world you want to make something that's more tangible and uh, hand felt in the real world. And so you decide to quit gaming and pick up quilting. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Gaming to quilting. That is a crazy analogy, but it's true. I mean, right? So, like, you want to make this change. There has to come a point where you are so discontent with where you're at that you're willing to make a change. So, if I'm discontent, it means that I'm no longer content. And not being content, hear me out and hear me closely, because I know scripture says that we are to be, con- in fact, the apostle Paul says, I've learned to be content in every situation. But to be discontent, basically in in my world, for the sake of this podcast, means I'm disgruntled, I'm upset, I know something's not right, I know it can be better, and I know I can do more, not living up to my potential. And so I'm discontent, right? So, when we make transitions, the first thing is, is we have a level of discontentment. It could just be that you know you're capable of earning a bigger income, right? So there's a level of discontent. Number two, we tend to move when we realize that our our abilities, our talents, and our passions fill a hole or a need somewhere, Right? Um, you have an ability to connect with people. You have a talent to make people feel good about themselves, and you have a passion for people. Yet you're standing on an assembly line, or putting widgets together, and yet you look out into this vast world and realize there, there is opportunity I have the ability and the talent and the passion to help people, but I'm standing on an assembly line, right? And so there's a hole that needs to be filled, and that hole lines up with my ability, my talent, and my passion. So now not only am I discontent, but now I'm beginning to self-actualize and look internally and look at how God has wired me and the gifts, the talents, and the passions he's wired me with, and then move forward in that. Why? because I'm discontent with where I am, right? So we tend to move when, number one, there's, there's discontent in ourselves. Two, we realize through introspection and looking at how we are wired, we realize our ability and talent and passion to fill holes. Number three, we tend to move when you begin to see the distinction between you and everybody else who tends to be wired in a similar way. Let me say that again. You see the distinction between you and others who are wired in a similar way. So let's walk through these steps, and I think step number three will make more sense. You become discontent with where you're at. You're discontent with, uh, let's say, you're discontent with your marriage. So you don't go get a divorce, right? Right? you begin to work on yourself. You begin to work on yourself and you begin to realize your abilities, your talents, and your passions fill a hole in that marriage. And as a result, you see a distinction between what you can do and how you can handle a situation versus other people. And then you step out. Right? So, Let's take, for example, the world that I come from, another example, church planters, starting churches from scratch. (laughs) Crazy thing. I would have never thought in my entire life church planting would be in vogue the way it was 10, 15, even 20 years ago, right? It's like all the rave in the Christian church world, starting churches from scratch, Well, what happens? Well, you get a holy discontent for, say, the way church is being done, or a holy discontent for how things are are, are working around you. And you're like, man, there has to be a better way. There has to be a different way. You know, Henry Ford said, if I had asked the people what they wanted, they would have just said, faster horses. (laughs) Henry Ford, right? So he goes and says, no, there's got to be a better way. In in my world with church, there's got to be a different way. I'm called to do something different. So I look at my ability, my talent, my passion, step two. I have a holy discontent. I look at my ability, my talent, my passion. And then I realize, well, that kind of fills a hole. And number three, I realize that I I will conduct, do, and be church differently than the church two blocks down the road. And so I do it slightly differently than everyone else. And that's the fingerprint of you. That's right. That's the fingerprint of you. And so when those three things begin to surface and begin to bubble up and begin to work, they collide together, they begin to coagulate together, suddenly transition begins to happen. You realize that transition has to happen happen. Now, when those three things begin to happen, what we have to realize then, there are three, I'm sorry, not three, there are four key questions that we have to begin to ask ourselves to move into that transition. And it's these four key questions that I'm going to dive into in the coming weeks, because they're so important in your transition. So, before I'm going to tell you the four questions, we're going to dive into a biblical story just for a moment. There's this guy in the Bible named Jonah. Now, there's some debate whether or not Jonah is a real story or Jonah is a, uh, an analogy of something else. I'm not getting into the theological debate of that. I personally believe it's a true, real story. It's a factual story. However. There's this man named Jonah, and God tells him to go to the city of Nineveh, and God says, listen, the city of Nineveh is going to be destroyed if they don't change their culture, and they don't turn to me and change their culture. Their city is going to be destroyed. Well, Jonah doesn't really like Nineveh. Jonah actually hates Ninevites and the city of Nineveh. He wants nothing to do with them, right? So what's he do? He says, you know, God, thanks for the information. I'm going to go the opposite way, and I'm going to head towards Spain. I'm going to get on this boat, go across the Mediterranean, and get as far away from Nineveh as I possibly can. Thank you, God, but I'm not going to do that. Well, <laughs> I can tell you from firsthand experience, one, arguing with God, and defying God never works out in your favor. So, Jonah learns a lesson that anybody who's tried to walk after and follow God learns. At some point, you're going to want to rebel and do your own thing. Just just don't. Don't. Just don't do that. Bad things, man. Bad things. So, Jonah gets on the boat and he goes the opposite direction. A storm comes up. Now. In those days most everybody had their own gods that they worshiped their little idols that they worshiped. They keep things in their pockets like today like we will keep a rabbit foot in our pocket. I don't, you know, like some people keep a lucky penny. They'll keep some trinket in our in our pocket, right? So I'll rub my rabbit foot or I'll rub my lucky penny. Okay, same thing. They kept trinkets in their pockets. They were their gods and they would rub them for good luck and they would rub them for whatever. And Jonah, of course, is a Hebrew. Well, he doesn't do that. Jewish people don't believe in idol and keeping an idol like that. Yes, your rabbit foot's an idol, and so on, according to the Bible. So Jonah goes, hey, I'm not, we don't, we don't do that, right? We believe in the one God. And so they come to Jonah in the middle of the storm on the boat. And some of you probably remember this story. If you went to Sunday school as a kid. But they come to Jonah because why? Jonah's asleep. They're all about to drown. This boat is sinking. They're they're just shy of un, undoing all of the cargo and throwing it overboard just to survive this storm. And they come to Jonah and they shake him, right? They shake, they shake Jonah awake down in the belly of this ship. And they're angry and they're frustrated. They're like, how are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping? They wake him up and listen to what they tell Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 8, it says, So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Dun-dun-dun. They've all prayed to their own little gods, and here's this guy with no rabbit foot, with no lucky penny, with no nothing, he's asleep, he's the only one that hasn't prayed to his God or hoped for luck or whatever, and they go down and they wake him up and like, look, dude, you need to do something because we are in trouble, we're all going to die. And they ask him these four questions. These are the four questions that we're going to dive into when we're talking about periods of transition. Why? Because Jonah and these people on this boat are in a major transition point. And in the story of Jonah, this is a major transition point for him as well. What are the four questions they asked? Those four questions are, and I'm going to paraphrase them, right? They said... They said, who is to blame for this disaster, right? The second thing they asked is, what is your occupation? Number three, where do you come from? Four, what is your country? Now, if we step back just for a moment and consider those four questions they asked Jonah, those four questions that they asked Jonah are key for us in our transition periods in life. The first question, who is to blame for this disaster? When we're in transition, what they're really asking in this transition is, how did we get here? How did you, how did we get here? How did we get to this point where this storm is in our life, right? So the first question that we have to ask is how did we get here? The second question they asked him, what is your occupation? That question really is for us in periods of transition from one career to another um, or from one hobby to another, what is my talent, passion, and ability? What is my talent, passion, and ability? The third thing they asked him is, where do you come from? This is a directional question. Where are you coming from? What's your angle, right? So here's the question for us in our moments of transition. What is your direction? What direction are you heading? And then number four, they asked him, what is your country? For us, this is a very important question. Essentially, what they're asking Jonah is, what has formed and shaped you? What has formed and shaped you that has brought you to this place with your talents, passions, and ability? And what direction are you headed with those? Now, this causes a lot of deep introspection on our part as we approach transition. And what we're going to do over the next four episodes is dive into each one of these questions so that we can make better decisions in our transition moments right? But I love what Jonah replies in Jonah chapter 1 verse 9. He says, and I'm going to say this in Hebrew because this is exactly what Jonah said. Anachi avri. Anachi avri. I am Hebrew. You notice he answered all four questions with one answer. One answer provided the answer to all four questions. And Achi Avri, I am Hebrew. It's likely that when you sit back and begin to look at yourself, as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, you're going to find there is one answer that will help you answer all four of those questions. That'll be that'll be about four weeks out before we get to the And achi avri. So I want to encourage you today, as you think about the transition that you're in or the transition you're about to make, right? You've probably arrived at the point of wanting to transition because one, there's a discontent. Two, you realize that you have an ability, talent, and passion that that fills a hole someplace. Number three, you write a transition because you see the distinction between how you might do something and how everyone else is doing it. I mean, you're listening to a pod... I never thought that I would podcast. But a friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine, Ryan Rieger, said, but nobody's going to podcast like you do. And out of 7 billion people on the planet, don't you think that at least a few of them might be blessed by how you would say something? Yeah, probably so, right? So you've got to that point of transition through those three things. Now, now we have to ask ourselves the four questions. How did I get here? What is my talent, passion, and ability? What is my direction? And what has formed and shaped me? And all of those questions are connected in En-Achi Avri. I am Hebrew. Well, listen, that's going to do it for this week. I am so glad that you listened in. Thanks for listening up. Listen, go to TysonPriest.com and... Join the Ferocious Faith community. When you join the Ferocious Faith community, you're going to get access to the Ferocious Faith Facebook group. You're going to get a PDF that will help guide you in strengthening your heart to make better decisions according to Proverbs 4.23. You're going to get a 30-day checklist to accomplish the core four. That is a part of living with a ferocious faith. You're also going to get a weekly value-added email in your inbox. that will help you add value to your life, help you think and process things. And if you so choose, you're going to get a complimentary one-on-one life coaching session with me. I would love to powerfully serve you. Again, please rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. And until next week, own it. Out.